As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Politics has never been hotter. Canada's National Observer has launched a new podcast. Hot Politics puts politicians on the spot and holds those in power accountable. Join host David Mackay as he dives into the issues you care about. The environment, healthcare, education and disinformation. At this point, have you guys failed to get your message across? Are you failing? Keith, you're smiling. <laughs> I, I teach a course at U of T and I often sort of half jokingly tell my students, look, I have you know worked the last two and a half decades of my life focused entirely on climate change. So I know a lot about failure. We have failed in all sorts of ways, but there is a shift happening. And we have a climate movement now, which we did not have 10 years ago. We're still, I think, lose more than we win. We're winning more than we used to. And it's now just a, a race to try and win fast enough. And that's the thing that kind of terrifies me when I get up each morning is we're going to get some victories along the way. We are seeing some progress. It still isn't nearly fast enough. It's all part of Podcast Tuesdays at Canada's National Observer, your number one news source on climate change and politics. Hot Politics is available on iTunes and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.
welcome to another episode of Canada Land Back. I'm Karen Pugliese, Editor-in-Chief of Canada's National Observer. Canada Land Back is a co-production between Canada's National Observer and Canada Land. Hey, Kim. Hey, Karen. Okay, so I've been looking through these uh, old videos on YouTube of um, a land action that I covered, like, back in 2000. I, I found this one. Check it out. Will you join in my crusade? Who will be strong and stand with me? Beyond the barricade, is there a world you long to see? And join in the fight that will bring you the right to be free. Do you hear the people sing, singing the songs of angry men? It is the music of a people who will not be slaves again. When the beating of your heart echoes the beating of the drums, there is a life about to start when tomorrow comes. Wow, that's... Uh, <laughs> do you recognize the song? I do recognize it. It's from uh, Les Miserables, where they yeah. uh, cover the French Revolution. Yeah, it's an ally that came out to stand with the people at Cocomville. And it's just funny how they connect that song to what's going on. And there's that line in there about the barricades. Yeah, could you imagine if we um, had musicals about our history that could change hearts and minds with a song. We should. <laughs> I know. There's been talk. There's been talk. I think we should do it. And, you know, we don't even have to write original music. We could take songs like that by the rights and uh, tell Indigenous history through other people's music. Yeah. Well, that's why I'm sneaking them into this podcast. <laughs> and tomorrow comes. Land claims can take generations to settle. Sometimes communities lose patience. Sometimes development forces them to take a stand or risk losing their land forever. Blockades have become a familiar scene in Canada. The land issue is rarely settled when blockades come down. Instead, the community is left with court cases, post-traumatic stress, and unresolved human rights issues. Some of those people are children. There's a saying I told you about last time. We get the grandchildren we deserve. We raise this generation together, Canada, your people and mine. Who did these children become? This is their episode. In the first half, we'll introduce you to three people who survived land conflicts as children. In the second half, they share their experiences with each other as they meet for the first time. Please be warned, this episode contains two descriptions of violence against children. Hi there, I'm Tracy Deer, and I am in Ganawage, which is located in Quebec. So Beans has been a story that I've wanted to tell ever since I lived it as a 12-year-old girl. It also happened to be the summer I decided I wanted to be a filmmaker. In 1990, the Mohawks of Gunasatagi tried to stop a golf course from moving onto their territory, land where they've lived for centuries that was never ceded. 
The land was home to precious 100-year-old pine trees and a burial ground. The town of Oka claimed that they, not the Mohawks, had titled the land. Police moved in in a violent raid on July 11, 1990, opening fire and causing some Mohawks to fire back. Later, the province called in the army, more than 4,000 soldiers. It sparked a standoff that lasted 78 days. Across Canada, many First Nations set up sympathy protests and roadblocks. One of those was at Ganawagi, a nearby Mohawk community, many of whom were related to those protecting the land at Ganesatagi. Commuters facing hours of extra driving every day to get into Montreal just couldn't see the logic in it all. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. They blocked the Mercier Bridge, inconveniencing drivers who now had to take a long detour to commute to Montreal. Genawagi is home to Tracy Deer. Back then, Tracy was 12 years old. Her docudrama Beans retells that story from her perspective as a child. The film is real life. It has all the facts about the sympathy protest, and those are true. It also takes some creative license, letting the film version of Tracy, the little girl Beans, act out what she felt but could not express in real life at the time. At first, Tracy says, the roadblock felt exciting. My sister was 10. This was really exciting. It really felt like we were, we were in a movie. We were an adventure movie. You know, we loved, we loved adventure. Um, and so in the beginning, it felt like this is the best summer ever. Um, and that is when I was completely oblivious in the way that child, that in the way that children are and the way that they should be completely oblivious to what was actually going on and um, what was happening with the adults around us, with the community at large, with society, with the country, completely oblivious. There's a scene in Beans where Tracy and her sister drive their bikes down the middle of the street. The streets are now empty, devoid of cars, and that captures that excitement. Or there's this scene, as she and her sister help pile old furniture, a chair, a kitchen sink, onto the roadblock. Okay, this one's a little heavier. Okay? Yeah. Thank you. We're hard workers. Yes, we are, sweetie. It's a moment where after a long denial of rights, something meaningful feels like it's happening. We heard that at Stony Point, from Kevin Simon and Cully George, when they described those early moments of taking back the land as fun, at first. But it doesn't stay that way. It didn't for Tracy. And then slowly, it started to creep in. I started to understand that maybe this wasn't so fun. And I think the big, big, innocent-shattering, world-shattering moment for me was when the rumors were that the army was going to attack and forcefully take down the barricades. Um, we all knew that that wasn't going to be accepted. And so it was decided at the community level that uh, women, children, and the elderly should flee. And so on that one fateful day, a large caravan filled with, filled. Our, my car was filled. It was me, my mother, my sister, and two cousins. I mean, every car was just jam-packed with um, 
women, children, and elderly. And uh, we were fleeing to Montreal as refugees. And we were going to be put up in hotels because of how dangerous it had become. What you're going to hear next is hard to listen to. And it's hard to watch in the film. But it's important. Not just what happened, but especially Tracy's journey since. It's been five hours. Just doing a job, man. Oh, I didn't realize your job was to harass women and children. You're it. Not now. We ended up being stopped on the Mersey Bridge. We we were up there for hours. Every car was searched. They were looking for weapons. Of course, we had none. We also had no food. We also had no water. It was a hot, hot August day. And even that day, you know, started started exciting. Like, we were running around on the Mercia Bridge. Like, when do you ever get to do that? But once dehydration kicked in and hunger kicked in, um, it was no longer quite so fun. Me, I'm hungry. I know, sweetie. We'll eat soon. Spaghetti. Yeah, let's have spaghetti. Okay, that'll be the plan. So after hours, we were finally allowed to leave. But in that time, um, radio hosts, Quebecois radio hosts who were very much against us, had sort of spread the word and told everyone to come out and um, make their feelings known. And uh, that angry crowd did. You know, they, they, as we were driving by, they picked up rocks. They threw rocks at us. Um, they screamed obscenities at us, um, racist slurs. Um, when the rocks hit their mark, they laughed, they cheered. Um, and so for me, I think that's that's the big moment um, where it all became very real. Um, and that moment, that moment changed me um, for good and bad. You know, I I had a very very hard adolescence because of it. You know, all of that hatred that was thrown at us that day. As a 12-year-old, I had no idea what to do with it. And I ended up internalizing it, and it became a self-hatred. But then, but then, instead of that anger eating me up, I decided to be proactive. And I thought, um, the best revenge um, is to prove them wrong and to prove them wrong about me, to prove them wrong about us. And 
And I was going to do that by, by showing them that I mattered and that I had a voice and that I was important. And so I have just very, you know, singular focus, focused on my dream, that impossible dream, because if I could make that happen, then that was my proof to them and to the world. Uh, and that was my salvation, focusing on my passion and, and thinking about sharing stories as a way to heal and build bridges and do what I can in that way to ensure that something like that never happens again. Like, I don't want our, this is not the coming of age that I want for our children. Generations, this is our coming of age. Not everyone makes it through the way I did. And that's what we, that's, that's what we have to remember. Um, yes, yes, us on this panel have found ways to be empowered by these terrible things we experienced. But sadly, that is not the story for, for many of our people. And, and that's why, even though these, we've, we found ways to make this stronger, I don't want this to be the, the gauntlet by which we become strong as a people. My name is uh, Curtis Bartnibog from Eskenobitich, uh, also known as Bridge Church, located in uh, New Brunswick. Our conflict lasted from the fall of 99 to um, summer of 2001. So it was about two and a half years. Um, and it was, it was very similar to what Tracy was saying uh, we had blocked off all the entrances to our community and we had to basically rely on each other. As a young person, as a teenager back then, I was, I remember it was, we, we became, we became our own authority in our community. And during those times, it was like what she was saying that there was more, um, more freedom and a sense of pride, especially among the young kids. Back in 2000, while I was covering the blockade at Kokomville, my colleague Trina Roach was reporting on what became known as the Lobster Wars in the Mi'kmaq First Nation, then commonly known by its English name, Burnt Church. She went back to talk to Curtis Bartabo. Both sides have dug their trenches in this war of wills over the lobster fishery. Their territory, they're not getting through without us. The media dubbed it the Lobster Wars, the Burnt Church Crisis. You are violating the Supreme Court martial decision. They are. In 1999, the Mi'kmaq asserted rights upheld by the martial decision. Commercial fishermen protested. The government of Canada employed its usual colonial tactics and sent in the police. Personally, anybody, it's something that we've been dealing with for the past 500 years, so... It's the law, the rule of law. 
we had made national news right across the country. Take a different approach with the burnt church at this point. That approach included a raid on lobster fishers from burnt church last night. Fisheries and Oceans, or DFO, and the RCMP engaged in violent attacks. Back on land, a native fisher whose boat was badly damaged says fisheries officials deliberately hit his vessel. He went right by our face and he took out his gun and he put right at me. It's a miracle that nobody was killed. And by what regulation are you charging them? Curtis Bartaboak was 19 years old at the time. It wasn't an awakening for me where I decided that it was who I am and who I wanted to be. My name is Curtis Bartibog. I'm from Eskinobadich First Nation, also known as Burnt Church. Hey, Curtis. How are you? Good, how are you doing? Curtis and I drive around Eskinobadich, a Mi'kmaq community in northeast New Brunswick. I remember this bridge. <laughs> it's still the same. It's still the same. Yeah. But I remember like standing down there and a guy loading like his traps on a on a small boat, yep. like just a motor boat. And I'm Trina Roach. I started working for APTN in 2001. I spent that summer covering the lobster wars, and met Curtis back then. We head to the Burnt Church Wharf on a windy but warm day in August. On the dock, a four-year-old Mi'kmaq boy fishes for mackerel with his parents. Ready? Yep. Two, seven, go! As a young child, we grew up on the beaches of Eskinobich. We would fish uh, crabs and eels and play with jellyfish, um, go swimming all day. If we wanted lobster, if we wanted mackerel or salmon, It was always there for us to turn to. We start driving again, and Curtis tells me how, at age 14, he bought 25 wooden lobster traps. And for like a 14 years old, you make $100 in a day. That was like huge money back then. I thought I was rich. And uh, it was a good time. And it wasn't till Marshall, it seemed like after Marshall came, was when the tension started. Mi'kmaq Indians say they are celebrating the wisdom of their ancestors. This case is about the rights of the Mi'kmaq to fish and The Marshall decision. In 1999, the Supreme Court of Canada acquitted Donald Marshall Jr. of illegal fishing. I called Jr. back and said the court upheld Mi'kmaq treaty rights. That's our future. But celebration turned to conflict. This thing is hard to manage. Record. In a twinkle of an eye, your neighbors become your enemies. And there was a literally a wall of RCMP cruisers between our community and theirs. A few kilometers east, fishermen from the neighboring Acadian community of Negawak took to the wharves and the water. They, they cut all of our traps. CBC reporters and CTV were on the boats with the non-native fishermen recording them cut the traps. Yeah, I think that it will be more and more difficult to stop the fishermen. In a show of force, 
the non-native fishers... Abenaki filmmaker Alanis Abomsawin made a documentary about the conflict. It does not give you the right to go out there and fucking cut my traps. It's called Is the Crown at War with Us? Thousands of traps were vandalized and the communities were at war. And one scene shows Curtis standing on a dock, pointing and shouting at the Acadian fishermen. That was the day that I remember that it all started. Black Sunday. Yeah, they called it Black Sunday. Curtis had just finished his first year at university. He never went back and instead trained to be a fisheries ranger in Escanobadage. I wanted to be a part of a movement, uh, whether to be a political activist or a fisheries officer. There was a talk in our community that I've never heard. I've heard it in university, but in Burn Church, we were actually living it. We are here to stay, and we're going to fight together. And to me, that was so empowering as, as a Mi'kmaq youth that it gave me a sense of uh, pride and and who I was. A few kids enjoy the last days of summer, splashing around in the shallow waters just offshore in Escanobadage. I remember as a reporter standing on this thin strip of grass between the road and the rocky embankment over 20 years ago, filming a much different scene. This is Miramichi Bay. Yeah. Yeah. And this, but this is where DFO, like this is right, where all of right that happened. Right here, right in front of here is where it all took place. And where the filming took place and where the gunshots, you could see the bullets hitting the water and stuff uh, during one of the disputes um, was filmed right, we just passed it. They're images that have grabbed the attention of the country. A small boat with native fishers. The barricades went down. up after federal fisheries officers seized native traps from the waters off Burn Church. So this last is CBC night. News World. Mm-hmm. I remember Shogunar that reporter. Reports. I forgot about him. Curtis and I watch old news stories on YouTube. One CBC report shows grainy footage of Curtis stumbling towards shore, a small dory adrift behind him. These fishers say DFO officers went way over the line. He went right by our face and he took out his cuts. He put it right at me. I said, shoot! Shoot me! This morning, DFO... And so I thought that was you. Yeah. So that was that was during the, the raid? Night, yeah, there was a night raid that they'd done. Remember when I said I was recording when we were being rammed yes. by the boat? Okay. Curtis was one of the few That's, people at the time who had a video camera. That's from the land base position. Oh, okay. And this is me videotaping it while we're being rammed. Okay, so He was filming from the back of the boat as RCMP on Zodiacs chased the Mi'kmaq Rangers at full speed. So who's... Those are RCMP. Those are RCMP right there. SWAT team. And you're on the back of this That's boat. That's me holding the camera. It's a chaotic scene. I fall down right there, and I'm still trying to get them. <laughs> Oh my God. Right over my head. Wow. We watched the hull of the RCMP Zodiac swing over the back of the Mi'kmaq boat. No matter how many times I've seen it, it brings me right back to that point where my adrenaline is just flipped right on. Eventually, the RCMP catch up to the Mi'kmaq Rangers and board their boat. Uh, I was face down in our boat full of tear gas and almost passing out because I couldn't breathe. And the RCMP that arrested us, he had his 
his, his knee on the back of my neck with his whole weight on the back of my neck. And I'm gasping for air, not just from the pressure of his weight on my neck, but also fighting to stay alive because of the tear gas that was in my lungs. And he had his tactical rifle pushing down on the temple of my head. And it's... years I still remember it like yesterday every time I smell gasoline or an exhaust from a, like a snowmobile or an outboard motor it brings me right back to that day sometimes you get real tense for no reason you're just sitting there and you're holding your muscles and then your neck starts to get stiff and your back and and that still happens like 20 years later. And it's, it, it never goes away. There was uh, 15 of us arrested that day. What would you have been charged with? They charged us with obstruction. Think we're gonna get that legal funding? I yeah. certainly hope so. Yeah, I think so. Those are all our children watching us come out of court. <laughs> My kid's on there. A scene in a bombsman's documentary. That's the Burn Church bus, eh? Yeah. <laughs> a school bus drives by the courthouse in nearby Miramichi. You dragged us criminals in front of our children, eh? Where Mi'kmaq parents face charges for asserting treaty rights. The trauma that was in, done to our people, especially the children, hearing like gunshots being fired at our community and people screaming. Um, a lot of the times when our people were being rammed out there, it was done right in front of our community with hundreds of people standing on the shore watching helplessly. There's nothing we could do. And our, our children, the young kids had to witness that. And it's a miracle that nobody was killed. Today, Curtis drums and sings for fun, for family. What you doing, baby girl? Washing the dishes. He has three kids who he takes fishing. Use your reel. <laughs> oh, it's a big fish, man. <laughs> Over the years, he's been an activist, politician, and a fisherman, captain of his own boat. He still lives in Escanobadige, along the shore, looking out over the water where the lobster wars unfolded. Under the turmoil and the dispute, and when we become put under pressure as a community, it, it, for some reason, it, it draws our people together uh, and we become even stronger. And it was such, a, it was such a, an empowering thing to see and those three years, I would say, were a defining moment on who I became, and it steered my future on where I wanted to go and who I wanted to be.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Ani, Wasina Shining Star Woman is my name, my Anishinaabe name. My government name is Alabama. I'm from Stony Point, and right now I'm in Sarnia, Ontario, in my apartment building. I really empathize for Tracy and Curtis for what your community and what you yourself went through, you know, defending your land and our treaty rights. I did not live that, and I did not live those horrors. But my family, my ancestral background all did. And so I don't think they meant to, but in a sense that that hurt and that pain got passed down to me. And so hearing your guys' stories brings up, um, it, it, it just resonates with me really because I felt alone living in an army barrack and um, dealing with racism and the harassment of, you know, because of miseducation of what actually happened to our people. You met Alabama at the end of the last episode. She is the fourth generation at Stony Point, where a whole community has waited more than 80 years for the government to return land they seized to build an army base to train soldiers for World War II. This is a portion of her speech made at the launch of a book jointly written by the community. The book is called Our Long Struggle for Home. We had to heat our homes by wood stove, go to surrounding communities to get our water. And we all had an incident or two 
where we stuck up for the community and its members. It was normal to run around in the, in the junkyard. It was normal to play in the dilapidated army barracks. This was our fun as children. But now when I'm old, now that I'm older, I do realize what my mom, what my mom was trying to explain to me. That, it, that to a Canadian citizen, this isn't normal. This is not what a Canadian citizen endures in their lifetime. But yet, our home, like other indigenous communities, struggle with these issues, mental health, addiction, and it's still not being addressed today. We're heading in the right direction and the land is coming back. It's a dream for services and infrastructure here for the community and for the future. All I please is that, all I please, all I ask is please to pray and never forget. Never forget the ones who stayed here over the past 20 years and what they endured. The sadness, the harassment <laughs> and sickness Please remember them for the future of Stony Point. Thank you all for being part of this. Curtis, I'm just wondering, as you're listening to Tracy, are you relating to what she's saying? Are there, there <clears throat> things in her story that you relate to? Yeah, uh, it's almost uh, identical like what we went, we went through. It was the most empowering time for me being a young man and, 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 and a teenager. It was one of the proudest times of my life where we were there uh, representing our community and not just uh, standing up for our own community, but it was taken and we we're viewed by other First Nations that we we're standing up against the federal authority and basically fighting for everyone else's rights at the same time. That Yes, we do have title to uh, this land and we do have title to our our natural resources and uh and we weren't going to back down because we knew that what we were doing wasn't wrong what we were doing was the right thing to do we've been doing our utmost to do everything possible within our communities for our people but this is a this is a problem that goes beyond us these problems are a it's a part of Canada, it's part of society. And so for me, that responsibility falls on Canadians. And so to get Canadians engaged at every level possible, I think we all have the capacity as individuals to make a difference. I go into the world every day thinking I can make a difference. How am I gonna do that? And I'm trying through, through the one thing that I Feel is my superpower. I'm a storyteller. So I am doing what I can. I think we all need to look inside, figure out our superpower, and then get out there and do it. And there's just so much, uh, there's so much I want to say without trying to get emotional because, because when I start bringing it out, it's, it's hard to talk about it, uh, especially when the violent parts, when we're being uh, raided by RCMP and the we're raided by commercial fishermen and non-native uh, non-native uh, people. And as a young person, I never knew what uh, anxiety and depression was because I 
I always felt fine. I always felt good. But um, a couple of years after our conflict, I started getting panic attacks. Like I would always feel like I'm having a heart attack, uh, can't breathe. And then these, these triggers would just hit me out of the blue. And it, I noticed it's, I started seeing it in a lot of our, our other people that were had to battle through what was going on. And I've seen a lot of my friends and family members who who became addicted to substance abuse, um, prescription medication and alcohol. Uh, we lost a lot of members to um, drug and alcohol abuse, uh, suicide. Um, so even even the the conflict may have been settled, but the trauma lasted. I I just want to mention as well um, with what Curtis said how uh, putting pressure under a community brings us together. So even though each of us walk our own lives, you know, however that may be, with our traumas, with our walking in a good way, however we are, we all still come together. And that's one thing that I I noticed that even the ones that don't want to talk about their their trauma, they're they're the ones that are still wanting solidarity. Tracy, do you want to talk a bit about that? Because I picked that up as a, a theme in beans. And it's actually, there's some hope there as well. Absolutely. I think that is one of the most incredible traits that we have and we have had for generations and for centuries is this resiliency, adaptability. Um, you know, <laughs> we've had everything thrown at us and we're still here. We're still proud. We're still strong. We're still standing up for what we believe in and what is important. And for me, that was... That was the positive that I have from that summer and that I have hung on to as I cope with all of the negative aspects of that summer. Um, I mean, I watched, I watched my people, I watched my family, my role models stand up against incredible odds you know, we had tanks surrounding us and we stood up. Looking back at it, it just, uh, it was, it was just, it was just something that, uh, that was just an amazing thing that we, we, we done. We started seeing the support, uh, coming in from people right across the country, people from, uh, mainly all over Atlantic Canada and Ontario. Uh, we've had even community members and warriors and people from national leaderships come to our community and stay for months at a time. And our community had taken in all these strangers and we're feeding them and housing them. And some of them, <laughs> some of them even snagged while they're here. <laughs> there was some children that were born uh, during that time from from our conflict that's the thing about about 
Native people, through hardship and conflict, we still managed to find joy and humor as a way to kind of steer away the traumas on what we were and what we were going through. Do you think that there was like some sort of awakening and maybe it, it starts with Kanesatage in 1990? Because I feel like there's there's kind of a dialogue that starts. And then I started seeing things that at least I had never seen before. Granted, I was still fairly young. Uh, for sure. The, like uh, the media dubbed it the, the Oka crisis. And that that was a big Kickstarter that, that helped give like a national face to, to the resistance and through like the national media and, and our own our own uh, indigenous networks. Do you have hopes, fears? Is there reconciliation? Is reconciliation dead? Where are we going? The future is very, very bright. It, it has to be. I mean, I wake up every day with hope, idealism, optimism, because anything else, I can't take a, I can't, I can't function. I can't move. There is so much on our shoulders right now. Um, as Indigenous people. <laughs> but then we can also just look at the world. There is so much hatred and anger across the board. I have to believe in the good in people and do what I can to facilitate step by step of us getting to a better place. I, I see our people thriving. I see Instead of anger being our birthright, I want joy and happiness to be our birthright. That's where, that's where I want us to go. And I do, I see that movement happening. I, I see in the, in, the, in the 30 years since I experienced that great trauma that summer, I have seen movement in this country. Future so bright, gotta wear my shades. <laughs> Anyways, um, yes, exactly. You know what Tracy was saying, like it, responsibility on all individuals, Canadian individuals, to uh, be, you know, to be educated in their their history, and it's not their fault that they don't know whether it was, you know, the government. Um, mismanaging information not you know through media blackouts like their indigenous people's words and um, thoughts weren't expressed and so um, I would just like the you know individuals to take a step and to listen and hear these stories that that happened on Canadian soil. I feel like everyday Canadians are starting to open up. What I want for everyday Canadians is to get past the guilt because guilt is inactive. Guilt keeps them stuck and it makes them turn away. And we need them to be active because they're the ones that are putting the politicians in place who then create the policy that affect our everyday lives. That's that's all I'm hoping for is that, that our First Nations people and Indigenous people across Turtle Island, we have to all come together and focus on a point where we achieve our prosperity and our peace and our connection to spirit and the land once again. And that is the main target that we need to come back to who we were 
and we need to be back connected to the land. Those are the things that have to be addressed. Even though there is pain done to us, we need to move forward and we can acknowledge it, you know, shed a few tears, but we are resilient and our people have shown. And like I said in my speech, without the pain and suffering of my elders, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be able to speak, use my language, practice culture. It would all be hidden. And so I have to thank all my ancestors for that pain and suffering they endured because they knew one day we would come back and be on top of that trauma. I know it's easier said than done, but it's the baby steps that we're taking. And, you know, these conversations like this where, um, you know, I'm going to walk away not feeling alone. Um, and I hope you guys do too. I want to be optimistic and say yes. And we hear a lot of rhetoric. We hear a lot of talk from, from the politicians about reconciliation a lot. But the action behind their words is a lot slower than what, what we need to see. Our, our federal government was there in power now for seven years, has it been? Six or seven years. We can't keep extending our hands and, and forgetting the past when they don't extend their hand and help us move forward. The time of talk is over and we need to see some action about it. I believe that it's possible. Will you join in my crusade? Who will be strong and stand with me? Somewhere beyond the barricade Is there a world you long to see? Do you hear the people sing? Say do you hear the distant drums? It is the future that they bring When tomorrow comes During the conversation there was something else they talked about Another system that's failed Indigenous people, the media. There wasn't no recognition for what happened with the broken treaties. Um, it's more so we hear with truth and reconciliation what happened with uh, residential schools. And, you know, that is a, a horrific event that happened to our people. But that is only one event that affect us, affected us all. And there's all of these other events across Canada that did cause pain and trauma to our people. And, you know, the discrimination and racism that we endure from other people, they, they're not educated or the, the media blackouts cause so that they don't, they don't know our sides of the story. I don't feel that a lot of the, the non-native and Canadian politicians don't even know what reconciliation looks like because with uh, media blackouts that have been hiding and distorting the truth and history, uh, you can't have reconciliation until all the truth comes out, all the history comes out. So for us to reconcile any differences, we have to know what's on the tables to what we're agreeing to. Next episode. Out of all the things journalists have to cover in Indigenous communities, land actions are the most complicated, involving a tangle of history and relationships that they often trip into unprepared. 
These are also the most polarizing stories because they question the legitimacy of Canada, the character and mythology of a country allegedly built on peace, order, and good government. So often the media, even those of us who are trying to do this with the best of intentions, get it wrong. We struggle with issues of balance and objectivity. At one time when I was younger, I thought I knew what those words meant. I'm not so sure anymore. Land defenders and journalists, next time on Canada Land Back. Canada Land Back is hosted by Karen Pugliese. That's me. This episode was produced by Karen Pugliese and Kim Wheeler. This episode also contained reporting by Trina Roach. Canada Land Back is a co-production between Canada's National Observer and Canada Land. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work.